Um, without further ado, let's stand and welcome Pastor Paul Shepard. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize recording was taking place last night, so I had folks reading from the audience and only found out afterwards that it wasn't being captured, so I'm sorry about that. But um, So today, as I uh, call just a few passages, those of you who are going to read for me will need to come to that mic for the benefit of the recordings. Okay, thank you for that. Well, um, did you get anything last night? Good, good, good. What, um, what was the first of the principles that we covered? Anybody remember just without sneaking in? The desire principle, absolutely. And then what was the second that we covered? The departure principle. If you're going to get from the wilderness to the promises of God for your life, you're going to have to really want it. Not everybody wants what God has for them. And some folks, as I said last night, are just content to, to enjoy fire insurance. No, they're not going to, have, to hell if that's all you want. And, you know, you can go to heaven like that. You can go to heaven from the wilderness. So if you are content with life as it is right now, don't let anybody trouble you. Go on and do your little, do your little wilderness thing. Knock yourself out. The Lord loves you. He loves people in the wilderness. He really does. It's not like he only loves the folks that were going to, to the promised land. He loves them all. But if you want everything he has for you, you got to really want it. And we ended last night saying you got to really be willing to depart from some things. One of the most frustrating things that happens in some people's lives is they want to hold on to the past while pursuing the future. You can't do it. If you're going to get where God is taking you, you got to be willing to release where you've been. And it's frustrating to be a child of God and you spend your life where God was. <laughs> you don't want to spend your life where God was. You want to spend your life where God is. And there is a there for this season of your life and you got to get there. Remember Elijah was um, listening to God. God told him to, to tell um, Ahab, listen, you've led my people into idolatry. I'm going to show once and for all that you can't do that and be blessed. And you know, the, uh, Elijah the prophet pronounced the drought, and for years there would be no rain or dew and all of that. Well, Elijah had to live through that same thing. The difference is he was always listening for where God's next is. And he was by a brook drinking water, and, the, and God had a raven fly, ravens flying in and feeding him. And all of a sudden, the ravens stopped flying in, and the brook dried up. And Elijah's sitting there saying, I'm raven a little late this morning. Where's my breakfast? Nothing, nothing flew in. When you hit seasons like that, you just got to say, okay, God, where are you now? What's my next? Yeah. Yeah. And the next was get up and go to Zarephath, and there's a widow there, and I have, God said, I have commanded her to feed you. And he had to get up and go. Some folks sit by the dry brook wondering where God is. And sometimes a dry brook is a church, 
sometimes it is a, a relationship. It used to be where God was. It's not there anymore. And so you got to say, where are you now? Now, don't get too happy. That don't mean you can leave your husband or wife. Let me just be real clear. Oh, that's my word. Come home from the retreat. Baby, I'm out of here, God said. Uh-uh. The devil is a lie. Don't blame that on me. Has a man coming up to my church looking for me. You told my wife to leave me. No, no, no. Don't do that to a brother. But, um, but you got to find out where God is. All right, so with that, we're going to move on now. Let's see, the schedule I saw has this uh, session ending at 11.15. Um, so I'm going to give the mic up for, what, the last five or ten minutes? How much do y'all need to, to end it? Huh? Ten minutes? Okay. So I'm going to be done at 11.05 so that they can wrap up. Um, <laughs> okay. All right, well, I'm going to do my best, let me put it that way, to, to get you there. All right, uh, so having covered the first two principles, the desire principle, the departure principle, I want you to write on line number three of the principles we're covering. Number three, the direction principle. The direction principle. Now, somebody, I need a reader to come to this mic and read Joshua chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Joshua chapter 1, verses 3 and and four. Yes, this is just fine. Perfect. Thank you. Is that on? Check, check, check. Check, 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 check. Okay, now it is. The anointing just came right now. Ah. <laughs> Joshua 1, verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Thank you. Now, did you notice what was just read? God said, now that they're willing to depart, Moses is dead. He got to depart from that. You've mourned him and celebrated his life, but now you got to have the courage to bury him. Thank you. And um, they have done that, and God says, now it's time for you to pick up and move forward. Yeah. And then he described, you just heard it read, here is the land I've given you. Now, some people grab the first sentence, every, every place your footsteps, I've given it to you. And they get excited and they stop reading. Right after he said every place you step, he told them where to step. We got a whole lot of Christians today who want to claim stuff God never gave them. Talking about every place. No, he told you what the place is if you were listening. And a lot of folk want to claim any and everything and blame it on God. Not at Lineage, but every other church I ministered to. Every place in the country, in the world I preach, except Lineage, there's somebody who wants to claim something that's not theirs to claim. They go up in a Bentley dealership. I claim it. 
Well, if God didn't say, I have a Bentley for you, you can't claim it. It's not in the description of what he said you could step on. He told him every place your foot steps, and then he told him where to step. They couldn't go outside of the promised land and claim stuff out there. Same is true in your life. You can claim what God gave you. You can't claim what's not yours. Sorry, some single folks want to claim what's not theirs. When I was single as a young man in my church, there was a little season in my church growing up. We were teenagers who had gotten saved and what have you. And, and, and there was a little season where folks started claiming other people to marry. And, you know, like, well, wait a minute. How are you going to claim somebody to marry unless they sign off on it? And we had more than a few folk have one of the other singles in the church. I was praying and the Lord said, you're my husband. (laughs) And they meant well. But they just wanted him to know you're off the market because God told me that you're my husband. And those brothers, without exception, said, wait a minute. He didn't tell me anything like that. I'm talking to him just like you're talking to him. And I think you must have missed it on that one because he didn't give that word to me. I was a young preacher. I was By then, I was starting to preach. I, I've been in pastoral ministry since 82. I started as my dad's associate pastor, but I started preaching in my teens. I got married when I was 24. Started preaching in my teens, so I started doing youth meetings around the country in my denomination, doing youth revivals and stuff like that. And I was in my teens, and every, and every now and then I'd hit a city where some sister walked up to me and said, the Lord said. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm like, God's not a polygamist. He didn't give me all these wives around the country. And my wife... I used to preach that uh, a lot, and, and finally she, she got sick of hearing, of not hearing something. She said, baby, next time you tell that story, tell them of all those women who claimed you, I was not one of them. <laughs> she said, let it be on the record. You came to me, I did not come to you. That's important. That's important. You can't strong arm somebody into marriage and blame it on God. So we got to understand the direction principle. God knows what he has in mind for you. Your job is to identify your unique calling, follow his specific directives, and pursue his purpose for your life. So you can claim what he's given you, but don't assume without hearing from him what that is. That's where hyper-faith teaching often goes astray, where people try to lay claim to something in the name of faith. Well, faith has to be based on a solid word. Faith isn't a shot in the dark. Faith is a leap in the dark. No, it's not. It's a walk in the light. 
You got to have the light of a word, of a promise, of something God said. Now, I can walk in that. Now I got something to anchor my faith in. If I'm anchoring my faith just because I, you know, and people love saying that we're, we, I speak those things that be not as though they were. No, God does that. We don't do that. People got to rightly divide the word. The only way you get to speak something is if God said it first. You can't just walk around the, the world claiming stuff and declaring that these days, decree and declare. You notice how people put them two words together now. Decre- I decree and declare it. That sounds cute. But are you declaring what God already said in heaven? You can say on earth anything he said in heaven. But if he didn't speak it and you the one talking, you're going to have to bring that to pass. Because he doesn't watch over your word to perform it. He watches over his word to perform it. So if you have a word from him, you can claim it. If you have a hope, yeah, I wish God would do this. That's a prayer request. Lord, give me confirmation that this might be your will for me. So your first job is to identify your unique calling. How do you get to know where it is God wants you to go? What God wants you to do in your life? How do you know? A lot of people come, have come to me over the decades, Pastor, how do I de- identify God's will? I always hear about God's will, especially younger uh, Christians. But how do you actually find that? I said, that's a good question. Let me give you some answers. Over the years, I've developed a simple A through G formula to give people. Let me share it to you real quick. Just use the, the letters A through G. A stands for ask. How do I identify God's will for my life? I ask him, Lord, what do you want to do in and through my life? Pray. If you don't have direction, you can't afford to be prayerless. If you don't know what God's doing, you got to be prayerful. You don't have an option to be a prayerless Christian. You got it because we work for him. He's the boss. I got to work for him. You don't go to work and just figure out what you want to do. You got to go there and discover, why did y'all hire me? And God hired you. You didn't come to him. He came, oh, I found the Lord in 1983. No, you didn't. He wasn't lost. (laughs) He found you in 1983. You were the one lost. And he found you. Now that he found you, you got to say, why did you, dis- why did you find me? Why did you capture me? Paul said, I've been apprehended by God. Why did you apprehend me? Ask. B, discovering God's will. Not only ask, but B, burdens. Look at the burdens that God puts on your heart. Look at the things you can't shake. The burdens that you, you find it difficult to get it off your mind sometimes. Look at those because it could be that that is pointing you towards something you're supposed to do. Now, a word of caution. Not every burden is a calling in and of itself. But every burden indicates something you ought to do, even if it's just pray. When you have a burden about something, oh, there's something I see in the world or in my neighborhood, in my school, in my church, whatever it is, and I'm so burdened, well, pray. Because maybe prayer is all you're supposed to do. And your intercession will make a powerful difference in that area. But sometimes a burden is, is a precursor to an actual calling. 
Some of the greatest companies in the world were established by somebody who couldn't shake an idea. They just couldn't shake it. They had to do something about it. And so you got to examine your burden. So pray, A, ask. B, burden. C, conferral. The word conferral. C-O-N-F-E-R-R-A-L. Conferral. What is that, Pastor? Listen to the people who are prayerful who spoke over your life. Because sometimes God reveals a calling on you to other people before you see it. Sometimes they know it before you know it. Sometimes you're a Samuel who is hearing God but don't know whose voice it is. And Eli has to tell you whose voice it is. You remember that? Samuel's a lad. He's, he's growing up learning how to be a youngster serving in the, in the house of God. And in the night, the Lord is calling him, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up and runs to Eli. That's the only voice he's known. You call me? No, I ain't call you. Go back to bed. Samuel, Samuel, get up. You called me. No, I didn't. Third time, Samuel. He gets up and runs. You've been calling me. And Eli said, the Lord is speaking to this boy. He said, go back. And this time, when you hear it, Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Eli taught him to train his ear to hear God. Stop running to me. Stop depending on me. You're his servant. He'll tell you what you need to know. And so, and you know, the Lord gave him a word that Eli didn't want to hear. Read it when you get a chance. That's why the boy had to, had, to, had to learn how to hear the voice of God, even if it wouldn't make his, his mentor excited. Yeah. So you've got to know, see, conferral. Listen, I was a little boy growing up in my daddy's church. My dad was my pastor all my life till my first 31 years, till I moved uh, 2,500 miles away across the country to pastor. And so... I was growing up in, in my dad's church, little pew baby, you know, any of y'all who grew up in church you, all your life. And the saints would pat me on my head sometime and say, you're going to be just like your father. And I thought, no, I'm not. I didn't even want to be like him. I loved him and I loved hanging out with him, but I didn't like his lifestyle. My dad was sanguine. People, people, people. Just it, sanguines are the, are the most extroverted of the four basic temperaments. Sanguines just love people. Sanguines don't, don't like aloneness at all. Just people, people, people. That was my daddy. Just people, the more the merrier. And he's that kind of pastor and the folk just always. Just, and, he, you know, and so he loved. It was like church was his life. And he married a phlegmatic. My mother is as laid back as they come. And so she just, she realized who she married and she wouldn't bother, you know, when, when church was over, she'd go home because she don't know when she's going to see him. <laughs> don't know. And she, and she came to not, I'm sure in their early marriage years, she wanted more of his time and attention, I'm sure. But eventually she was like, look, that's him. 
She raised her kids and she poured into us. Dinner time, she said, kids, your food's ready. And we never, she taught us, don't we not waiting for dad? He may be here, he may not. Sometimes he would call, we all at the table. He called, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm over here. Uh, Aunt T had uh, cooked me a T-bone steak. I'm over here eating. And my mother wouldn't get frustrated. That's who she married. Now some of y'all would have been been all and say, I've been in that slave and you. She knew who she married. Let that man go to his auntie's house and eat the steak. And she just poured into us. And here's my point, though. I didn't want to be like him in lifestyle. I loved the fact that he was a man of God. I loved the fact that God used him so powerfully. But I didn't want that kind of life. I thought when I grow up and get married, I want, I want to be a family man. I want my family to know I'm coming home after work. <laughs> Furthermore, I want to go to a work that's not at the church. I thought I want a real, I want a job that's not, you know, cause I, mainly because I thought if that's what a pastor is, a pastor doesn't have a life. All he has is the church. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. So later on, when the saints were patting me on the head and prophesying that I was going to be a preacher, I rejected it because I didn't want the lifestyle I thought you had to have. Wow. Well, as it turned out, the Lord had called me. Yeah. I found that out in my teens. Yeah. But I also found out so I started out, I said, okay, I acknowledge my call to preach. That's when I started doing the youth revivals and stuff. I said, but I'm not a pastor. Yeah. Not a pastor, because I don't want to be like that. Yeah. And eventually the Lord showed me, no, I've given you a pastoral call too. And then I learned, but his model of, his style of pastoring is not for everybody. Yeah. He knew who I was when he called me. I'm choleric melancholy. That's my, that's my blend of temperaments, if you know about the blends. I'm Chlormel. I'm like the Apostle Paul. And we are, we are you know, people are all right. <laughs> but we don't want to spend a whole lot of time with them. <laughs> you know, minister to them, do what God calls you to do. Now I'm going home. Catch y'all later. And... I learned you can be yourself and fulfill God's calling. You have to change who you are. God knew who you were when he called you. You have to learn how to fulfill the calling and yet be true to who you are. So pay attention to the conferrals. D, D stands for dreams. Dreams. Check out the dreams that God gives you. Because some of the dreams are indicative of a unique part of your calling. Yeah. Not all dreams are pipe dreams. Now, not every dream is significant. But please understand that. Yeah. You wake up and, you know, has this, I had this weird dream. Sometimes it's just a weird dream. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Just wake up and go on about your business. Yeah. Your subconscious was doing all kinds of things. You don't know what was going on. Now, some of y'all, you know, spend your time reading these books and stuff. Every dream has to be important. I'm not, I'm, I don't have time for that. Because the ones that are important, the Holy Spirit will make you aware of that. And so pay attention to dreams. Remember what God said through the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on my handmaidens will I pour out my... God was saying, in the day of the Holy Spirit dispensation, I'm going to give people dreams and visions. So pay attention to your dreams and visions. What's the difference? A dream is what you have at sleep. While you sleep, a vision is what you see wide awake. You're wide awake, but you see something that's not in the physical right around you, but you see it so clearly. Sometimes you're walking down the street. Sometimes you're driving. Vision. And so um, pay attention to your dreams and visions. E, E stands for the word exposure. Exposure. Pay attention to what God exposes you to. Pay attention to who God exposes you to. Sometimes God will bring a situation or a ministry or an individual, an entrepreneur, any, God will bring someone or something into your life for a specific purpose. And so you have to pay attention to what he's exposed you to. You're, you're called by God, so you're not just randomly living life. Every day you belong to him, and any day you're subject to have him expose you to something or someone for his own purpose. And you might not know it at the time. And you look back later and say, oh, that's why I met them. That's why I went to that conference. I have been to conferences where most of it was lost on me, but there was one session that changed my life. And that was what God wanted me at that conference for. He don't try to make everything significant. Some things aren't. But find the things that are and find the people who are and lock in. Got it. So in this meeting, it could be of all these principles and stuff like that. You can leave here with one of the sections of what I say that just stays alive in you for the rest of your life. And if you walk it out, you'll see God do some things. So don't get frustrated. That, 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 that point wasn't for me. Well, it wasn't for you. That's all. It was, but it was for somebody. Rejoice for whoever it was for. And grab yours. Exposure is really important. That's why I've hung out. Ever since I've been in vocational ministry, I have hung out with, with the people whose anointing I envy. Not in a bad way, you know. But I... I envy it, so I want to spend, because I learned that from my daddy. My daddy said, when you see God's hand on somebody in a way that really thrills you, he said, don't get jealous, get close. Get close. And his rationale was, he said, because when their cup overflows, if you're close enough, some of it might drip on you. So don't, you know, don't get mad at folk. They have what you don't have. Praise God that you have it. And so I got, I got big shot exposure, and I love it. I, not because I'm trying to be a big shot. It's because I want to be as close to what God's doing in them as I can. And, uh, and, and it's a blessing. I'm like, I'm like that mule. There's a story I heard growing up. Uh, I'm, I'm like that farmer who, who enrolled... Um, who enlisted his mule in the Kentucky Derby. 
course, that's not possible, but that was the story. And, 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 his, and the farmers were laughing him to scorn. You, you, do you know that mule doesn't have a chance against those thoroughbreds? The farmer said, I didn't put him in the Kentucky Derby because I thought he would win. I just figured the exposure would do him a world of good. Wow. <laughs> See, the, the idea, you, it's not like you're trying to compete or compare. Sometimes it's just you have something that I admire and I'm going to see how close I can get, what I can learn that I can apply to my own life and my own ministry. I love hanging out with my, I got friends who can preach circles around me. When, when I have them come at my church, you know, I, you know, some preachers get jealous. Anybody who's really anointed, they don't bring them at their church because, shoot, he, he, he's better than me. And if you love your people, give them the best they can get. Give them the best they can get. I bring them, them dudes who can preach circles around me, they come in as much as they will. Because I want my people to be. And my people say, boy, our pastor feeds us well. Well, if I'm a good shepherd, that's what a good shepherd does. I can't sit around wanting them to think I'm the best in the world. How does that bless them if they don't get exposed to some of the folks I know? I've been, up, I've been preaching in these stadiums with these guys. I remember when I was a nobody, just trying to fulfill the calling, had no idea I would end up in stadiums and all these stuff like that. Just, I was just a little dude, and I would try to meet some of the big shots, and some of them were too, yeah, they, were, they were busy looking for other big shots. I never forget, I went to one meeting and, and I just went up to the pastor and he was a mega church pastor and I, I was brand new in California. I had my little 34 people and so he doing his conventions and, I'm, and I just said, I just want to meet him and he wouldn't even hardly look at me. I said, hey, I'm a new pastor here and, and I, just, I just want him to look at me and smile, and pat me on my head, say, I'm praying for you, young man. Anything, would that would have been good. He busy looking for the big shots. He said, oh, oh, yeah, God bless you. <laughs> Years later, he is on the stadium program, and I'm on there too. Because God had done something, and I walked in the green room, and he looked up and said, oh, Paul Shepard! <laughs> and I thought to myself, Years ago, I tried to get you to look at me and smile and say, God bless you, or anything. Now I hear you calling my name across the room? Call me Novocaine. I am not feeling you. Go head on with that. I'm not trying to have that all. Now that my rocket ship has taken off and folk know my name, now you suddenly won't be buddies. But what it taught me when these young preachers come up to me now, I have to look them in the face because I know what it's like to want somebody to look you in the face and say, be encouraged. God bless you. Let me take a moment and pray for you. I know what that feels like. 
to want it and can't get it. And so the big shots have to wait for me to look for the other folks. So pay attention to your exposures. F, F stands for faith. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, God's unique calling has to be tried on. You won't know it till you do something about it. Don't sit around trying to wonder what it's going to be like to use your, your, your calling, to walk in your calling. You got to start walking. Peter was in the boat, storm. Jesus walking on the water to come see about his followers. They, all, they took the only boat there was, so he walked on the water. You know that story. They looked out, saw an image on the water. It's in the middle of a storm. So they saw somebody, as the wave goes up, they go up. Imagine that, imagine that scene. Somebody walking on the water, waves rolling, and somebody's standing on the waves. And they say, it's a ghost. Jesus said, no, fear not, it's me. And he said, oh, that's the Savior. Peter, if it's you, bid me to come out there with you. Jesus gave him one word, come. All right, come on. Now, Peter's got to do something besides stand in the boat talking about walking on water because you can't walk on the water when you're still in the boat. You got to be willing to step over and you can't just say, all right, well, I'm going to keep this foot in the, in the water and let me see. See if it'll hold me up. That's not faith. You said you heard God say, come, yeah. you got to go. Yeah. And when Peter went out, he actually was walking on the water. Yeah. Then somewhere between the boat and Jesus, he said, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't do this. Soon as faith left and fear came, he started down. And Jesus had to rescue him. So you got to try on your faith. At the end of the day, if you believe you've heard from God, well, you won't know until you take the step. You won't know. You, you got to move out. I said in Philadelphia, the years I was working with my dad, I felt this vision growing and it became real plain and clear. I was going to pastor a church that would grow large. God was going to make me a soul winner and a disciple, which I had prayed for years to be. And I was going to reach predominantly unchurched people. I knew that clearly toward the end of my seven years of working with my dad. I knew it clearly. I knew, I would, I knew then God was going to give me a radio ministry. My first radio ministry was called Enduring Truth. And I knew that in Philadelphia. And I started saying that to my friends. I'm going to pastor a church. God says it's going to grow large, going to reach unchurched. And I would tell them what I saw. And, um, but the day came when I had to stop talking to them and I had to get in my car. And I had to drive. See, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to get in the car. 
I'm leaving home, 31 years old, married, going on seven years married, and we're moving away. My wife, our kids were four and two. Well, one just turned three, and, and um, we're, we're moving, packed up the house, put it on one of them big Mayflower trucks back in them days. Y'all remember that company made it come big, huge truck, put our whole house in there, and they're going to drive it to California. And I got in my car, and I told my wife, I'm going to drive, go. The house had already been identified and stuff, so in the Saints, I was going to go be their pastor. They said, we'll, we'll meet the truck and, and put, put your house together for you. And you come out. I said, all right, I'm going to go out, and, and um, then I'll fly you all out. Because, you know, they were, kids were four and three. And, um, and my wife, I said, I'm, I, I got to go from Philadelphia to the Bay Area of California. I'm not doing that with them little kids in the car. <laughs> said, they'll not have to go to the bathroom and all this. I said, I just want to get there. So I want to speed. Back in those days, 1989, um, there were CBs were the big things you drove with when you were doing cross. You had your CB. And I'm really listening to the truckers to find out where the cops are. <laughs> you know, y'all, y'all never did that. Y'all too holy. I did that. Because I'm trying to speed, but I don't want to get a ticket. And the truckers, that's what they do. They call out, you know, mouse so-and-so. There's a, there's a Smokey, they called him. Smokey, that was a Smokey the Bear. That was a highway patrol. And so I'm listening, where's Smokey? All right, now, and, and, you know, I, I made it. Didn't get a ticket all the way across the country, and I was blow. I was making it, boy. And then I flew them out after I got there. But the bottom line is, there were times on that road where my car sounded like it was trying to talk me out of this. <laughs> Sometimes you step out, and then you're out there in the middle of the water like Peter. And I'm in that car by myself saying, what? You're leaving your daddy's church where you are the heir apparent, where the people love you. They want you to be his successor when he retires. And the saints were like, why are you leaving us? And I said, I'm leaving because God said go. I'm not, it's not because I don't like y'all. But I can't pastor a church God didn't give me. It wasn't in my territory to be my dad's successor. I can't stay here. Love y'all. Come back and preach for y'all sometime. But I can't stay here because God said go. You can't be tied more to stuff than people than you are to God's will. That pertains to your vocation. That pertains to everything in your life. What God wants is more important than anything else. And there were times when it sounded like the car tire was trying to talk me out of what I was doing. Wow. Sounded like that car, that tire was saying, you're a fool, 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 you're a fool. <laughs> fool, you're a fool, you're a fool, you're a fool. <laughs> and I had to ignore it. Say, well, I'm out here now. Got to believe God. And then those first seven years where we grew from 34 to 250, and the Lord had said thousands, yeah. I was frustrated. Because I said, well, God said thousands. Well, where are they? My first anniversary, we went from 34 to 45. 
I had 45 minutes at my first, 45 members at my first anniversary. And they had the nerve to be happy. <laughs> they were, they were excited, planning this little banquet, pastor's first anniversary celebration. And we got, we got 45 members. And I'm like, and we going out, I'll never forget that night, we driving to this little banquet place. And I'm like, why are we going out here? Nothing to celebrate. <laughs> now I got to sit out here and watch these grinning people and eat this dry chicken. <laughs> Seven years, we had only gotten to 250. I was all kind of frustrated. There were, as my wife, there were times driving home throughout those seven years where I would be, we'd be driving home from Sunday morning service. I said, we must have missed it. She said, we didn't miss it. I said, yeah, but the people aren't here. And you know what? God can be more silent than anybody I know. There are times you can pray fast, pull all your little spiritual tricks trying to get him to do something. I went in a hotel one time, three days and three nights. I said, that's a godly number. Got a room for three days and three nights. Told my wife, I'm gonna come out, I'm gonna have heard from God, trying to find out where these people are. I came and all I did was I took um, the, the, the store, the grocery store had a two and a half gallon water thing. And I got that, took it in the hotel, and I said, All I'm gonna do is drink this and pray and fast and read the Bible, and I'm going to hear from God. I came out three days later, had drank two and a half gallons of water, and I had lost about six pounds. Got in the car. She came to pick me up. She said, what did the Lord say? I said, just go home. <laughs> just, just drive home. What are you? Ask questions. <laughs> you know, you get mad when you, know, you can't get God to cooperate. <laughs> Nothing to talk about. He didn't say a word. I'm thinking there's going to be thunder and lightning and earthquakes in that room. It was nothing. But you know what I came to learn? He didn't say anything in that season. You know what I came to learn? When you can't get a fresh word from God, you know why that is? Because the last one he spoke is still in existence. He got nothing new to say to you. I told you. Everything I told you, go to California, you're out here. Now, you're frustrated because you've been out here for over a year and you don't have many. You have 11 more people. That's you. That's not me. I told you where to go and what to do when you got there. Keep doing it. And for seven years, we were faithful. And as I said last night, year eight, I started making the same altar calls I had been making for seven years. And people started getting saved week after week after week. God started doing amazing things. I was pastoring near Stanford. Droves of students started coming to my church. A professor and his wife joined my church. God just started showing up. This was in the... 
in the 90s when, um, when Clinton was going through that thing over Monica Lewinsky and all that stuff. <laughs> and um, Clinton, they, they had a special investigator in those days named Ken Starr. If you remember what was going on, the government appointed him. Ken Starr's daughter was a student, was a Stanford student when, during that time. She joined my church. And when the parent weekends would come, Ken Starr was coming to my church. I thought, what in the world is this? And then the next year, Chelsea Clinton came to Stanford. And one Sunday, I drove up, and these black vans were sitting outside of my church. And I walked into my office, and one of my men came and said, Pastor, Secret Service is here. I said, I didn't do anything. I did not do a thing. The devil is a liar. He said, no, no, they're not here for you. Chelsea decided she's coming here. She heard about your, your church. And she's coming to the second. We were having three morning services. She's coming to the second service. And the secret service said, well, we're going to go check it out because we were in the hood. Said, we, we need to make sure. <laughs> going to be okay for Chelsea to come over there. <laughs> and they came and checked me out. And I'm up preaching second service. Chelsea and her friend sitting right there. And I thought, and at the third service, Ken Starr, the investigator's daughter, is coming to that. How weird is that? That's what happens when you just do what God said and wait and see what happens. I couldn't have predicted anything like that. Then people start, and when, and when our church grew, it not only was abundant life growing in, by leaps and bounds in that season, but it wasn't growing into more of a black church, which I assume when I got to California, I'm a black guy. So I figured these thousands were going to be black because, you know, I came from Philadelphia. Most of the big cities of the Midwest, Midwest and, the, and the East are quite, you know, neighborhood oriented. And you worship with folk who look like you. There are very few interracial churches in mass number. You know, you'd have the twos and fews, but I'm talking about the mass numbers, you didn't have that in my whole existence growing up. When I left Philly, my dad's church had a thousand members. 999 of them were black. <laughs> I kid you not. We had one white sister in my dad's church. Never did figure out why she was comfortable enough to be there, but we loved her. And she loved us. We just made her an honorary black person and kept on going. You know what I mean? <laughs> just... But when I got, when our church started growing after those years of frustration, the church was becoming more and more like the Bay Area. And by the time that I left that church, there were over seven almost 7,500 people, 45% of them were non-black. 45%. It, every Sunday looked like the United Nations. I could have never anticipated that. 
People started calling me from all around the country, come teach us how to grow a multicultural church. I said, when I find out, I'll let you know. <laughs> I didn't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just followed God. And he did it. I did make it, as, we turn, as it turned out, we had created a, an atmosphere that was conducive for multicultural growth. I learned, I've learned how to do that. You can't have ethnic-specific church and expect it to be multicultural. You got to broaden what you do and how you do it. Got to broaden your leadership base. There's a number of things you got to do just to send the right signals. But at the end of the day, the harvest isn't up to me. The harvest is up to the one who called me. So you got to exercise your faith. And G, G stands for gifts. Gifts. What are the gifts God's given you? At the end of the day, you have to use the gifts because the gifts God gave you. When God puts something in you, guess what? It means he expects a return on that investment. Now, not every gift is going to result in a vocation, and not every gift is going to uh, um, result in a calling, but it's indicative of something you're supposed to do. So you got to look at your gifts, your spiritual gifts, and also look at your natural gifts and abilities, your aptitudes, the things you're good at. Look at all that, because those are things God invested in you. And you got to say, Lord, what do you want? But among your gifts, you'll find something that is tied to your specific calling. Definitely. He wouldn't have put it there if it wasn't. And you got to exercise it. So look at what he put in you. You want to know what he wants out of you? Look at what he put in you. And give him a return on his investment. And follow the specific leadings of the Holy Spirit. Because there's general leadings, but then there's, we're all, we all have a general calling. What is, what's that? The Great Commission. But there are specific ways you're supposed to help fulfill the Great Commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all having, we all have the Great Commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But there's specific ways God wants you to do that in certain contexts. So you got to follow, look at your gifts. Now, first of all, don't try to do something you're not gifted to do. I've seen a lot of people waste their time trying to learn something they don't have aptitude and they don't have a spiritual calling for. Yeah. I just like to see that. Well, look at it in other people. Don't do it, try to do it yourself. <laughs> i never forget there was a girl in Philadelphia. Oh, I want to make CDs. And I, I loved it too much to tell her the real truth. Because <laughs> the real truth was, baby, you can't sing. Can't sing. What you want to do? Try to make CDs. Nobody want that. <laughs> so find your callings. Listen to what God is saying to you. And do it. Because where God calls you, that's where you're going to see the fruit. Now, not every calling is going to result in vocational work. Sometimes your calling is going to be something you do as a volunteer. Yeah. So I, get to, I get to make my living fulfilling my calling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not everybody gets to do that. Yeah. Some, some people have to be bivocational yeah. because you have the one job where you make your living and then you have the other job where you fulfill your calling. Yeah. 
Remember, Paul, the apostle, did that. He would travel and he had to become a tent maker in some of the cities so that he could make money so he could go preach the gospel. So he'd make tents, make his earning, then he'd preach the gospel. And then, if you notice in the book of Acts, then when the companions started learning the patterns of, oh, the way we're going to fulfill the Great Commission is, we got to help go with him because some of us have to work and make enough money for all of us to live so that Paul can preach. And they freed him up. And then finally, when you get to 1 Corinthians 9, he's saying, you know, we who preach the gospel should live by it, ideally. But sometimes you got to work your way up to that. And so, remember, don't necessarily equate your vocation to your calling. Your vocation is what you are paid to do. Your calling is what you are made to do. And if the two come together, that's great. But fulfill your calling. Do what you're made to do, even if you got to do something else to get paid. Everybody understand that? All right. Now, let me say one more thing. The most important thing you can do is to seek to to have said about you at the end of your life what is said about David in Acts 13, 36. Let me read this because I want to read it from a particular um, translation, the NIV. Acts 13, 36. This is when Paul is uh, in Antioch. He's ministering in the synagogue and he's walking them through uh, the history of Israel, some highlights, but look at what he says in verse 36, Acts 13, 36. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Listen to that again. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. At the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that's what we all want said about us. I've served the purposes of God in my generation. And when that was done, I fell asleep. That's it. That's why we're here. You know, I want to live, I had a friend, I want to live to be 120. He was one of these hyper-faith people. I'm believing for 120. As it turned out, he didn't even make it to half. Died in his 50s. But he fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation. Had a marvelous ministry. Purposes of God were fulfilled. He got sick, didn't recover. Died, guess what? He might have saw that as a failure. Laying in the hospital saying, I'm trying to believe for 120, and here I am in my 50s. No need of thinking that way. Fulfill the purposes of God in your generation. When you do that, it's up to God when you fall asleep. Do what you can to stay here. Do do all, all you can to stay healthy. But at the end of the day, there's nothing negative about falling asleep after you've fulfilled the purposes of God in your life. It's why you were on the earth to get folks saved, to share the good news, to love your family and, and, and do the will of God. Yeah. And you did it. It's a good thing. 
We got to get back to that. Today's people, we, we are so earthly minded sometimes with no heavenly good. We think we're supposed to be here all these long. Yeah, long life is good, but it's not necessary. You, if you fulfill the God, God's purposes and fall asleep, that's a victory no matter what your age is. You know, I, I want to do what God said do. And when that's done, when he comes and gets me, I want to get on that chariot. You remember Elijah, he, he didn't even die. He just jumped on the chariot. I'm like, cool, that seemed cool to me. I'm ready. I probably won't get to do that. I don't know anybody but him that got to do it that way, but I'm just saying, God can take me any way he want to take me. And, and when I'm gone, I want the saints to celebrate. Pastor is where he worked. For. He worked to be able to have the testimony that he fulfilled the purposes of God in his own generation. And then he fell asleep. That sounds like a victory to me. I could care less what the age will be. It's not about the numbers on the tombstone. It's about the dash in the middle. First number is when I got here. Second number is when I left here. The dash is what's important. The dash is when I fulfill the purposes of God. One more thing, echo, and number four is the echo principle. Let me give this to you in the next 11 minutes. There's not a lot of this, but it's important. That's why I spent all this time on direction, because we got to get our direction right. I only need 10, 11 minutes. She said, take your time. 15, I'm going to take 15 minutes. <laughs> number four, the echo principle. Now, these last, this is the only one of the remaining principles I'm going to give you all. I have to spend some time, a brief session with leaders this afternoon after lunch. I'm going to give them the last three. They'll share it with y'all later. Because it's really specifically, I want to say some things to the leadership. But this is for all of us, the echo principle. I need somebody to come up and read Joshua 1, verses 10 and 11 in the mic, please. Joshua 1, verses 10 and 11. Am I? And, and Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days, you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Thank you. You say, what's the point of that? God spoke to Joshua. Well, Israel knew way back from Moses' time, I'm taking you to a land called Canaan. They call it the promised land. First generation couldn't go. We talked about that last night. They didn't have the faith to go. This new generation is ready to go. They're right on the brink of it. And look at what she just read. Joshua reminded the people of what, God, what this whole thing is about. We're crossing over. He said, we're going in three days. Get ready. Get your stuff together because in three days we're moving. We're getting out of this wilderness where we've lived. Our parents raised us in the desert, but God didn't call us, so we're going. Yeah. 
In three days, we're getting out of here. He said, now go through the camp and tell the people, get ready. In three days, we're going. I call that the echo principle. God spoke. Joshua echoed what God said. And he told the officers, y'all keep the echo going. So that all of us are in sync with what God said. That's good for a church. That's good for your personal life. You got to find the people who will echo with you what God said. We all have people who got a voice instead of an echo. They won't tell you what they think. When God is at work, what you think does not matter. It is what he says. So Joshua knew all too well because he's one of those 12 spies that went over. And he was one of the two who came back with the good report. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back echoing what God had said. Let's go over and possess the land. The other 10 jokers came back saying, we can't go over there. You see those giants? The problem with some of us is we're spending more, too much time with the tens and too little time with the twos. Wow, yeah. We're busy talking to folk who want to tell you what they think. I don't think we need to go over there. Who asked you? God said, go over. I've given you the land. You just saw it earlier in verse 2. He identified what the land was. Nobody's wondering what the land is. All you got to do now, once you have a clear revelation, is echo what God said. God said, three days, get ready to go. And what they supposed to do? Three days, get ready to go. Three ways we all going. Here they are. Echo. A lot of folk have people in their life. Here's what the Lord has told me to do in my marriage, as a parent, as a, in my job, in my ministry, in my church. And the people, instead of echoing, say, you can't do that. What's the matter with you? That's not possible. If you have people telling you what God said is not possible, get rid of them. They don't belong in your circle. Move them to the outside. You can still love them from afar. You can't be in my inner circle. I, as a man in my mid-60s, I have a very tight inner circle. The people in that inner circle know how to hear God. They know how to walk by faith. Now, if I miss it, they have permission to say, let's pray more about that. I don't think, I, don't, I think you missed it on that. Yeah. But again, they're listening for God with me. Yeah. And if they say, oh, that, that's, that doesn't have the ring. My elders get to do that. Yeah. Pastor, I'm not, you sure? You sure? That's it. And I've always, throughout my years as a pastor, I have given my elders permission because we, we don't vote in elders meeting. We have consensus. And if somebody is saying, I know they're prayerful, and they say, I'm, 
you know, I'm not going to fight anything God is doing, of course. But let's be sure. I'm not absolutely clear on that. Yeah. And what, what I've done over the years is, okay, let's take a little more time and pray. Yeah. I'll give you time. And then what, what's happened is one of two things. That one that was, I'm not sure, come back and say, okay, I'm clear. Yeah. Or they come back and say, I'm not necessarily saying I'm clear, but I don't think I'm supposed to hold this up. Yeah. I trust what God is doing in y'all. Yeah. And I'm just going to go with it. And let me tell you um, one time and when that happened, when Abundant Life was in this major growth spurt. And, um, and we couldn't find a church, uh, a place to build out because the church had grown by this point to 2,400 members. We were in a little warehouse that only sat 300 in the sanctuary and 300 in the overflow. We were having four services every Sunday to get everybody in. And I said, I can't keep this up. And we started saying, we got to find a place. And, we, and the only place we could find was a, a, a building in Mountain View that a company was moving out. They were moving out to Roseville or somewhere out there. It was a family-owned business, had been very successful. They were moving out. But they wanted to keep the building as family income. And they said to us, we'll let you build, you'll create this into a worship center, but we'll always have a lease agreement because this is family income. We're not selling our building. But we could build, as we drew it up, the architect and all, we could build a 2,100-seat sanctuary, have children's space and youth space and all the stuff we wanted. And we said, 2,100 seats? Ooh, I'll get out of these, these four services. And we said, all right. And, and so the family was favorable. The terms were good. And one of the elders said, huh? you know, I just look like to me, that's a lot of money to put in something every month and not own it. And I said, yeah, that's, that's conventional wisdom. I get it. But God's not opening the door for us to own right now. And we got to move because we can't keep growing. We've literally outgrown ourselves. And I told him, I am healthy, but I'm not doing more than four services. <laughs> and so finally, I said, well, let's pray some more. And he came back, and that's what he said. I, I think I'm just hung up on the whole, I, I just want to own when I'm putting that kind of money. But I don't, I don't think I should hold this up. He said, I'm just going to follow the rest of y'all. It was God. Because the church grew in those years in that we were paying a lease every month, yeah. but we grew from 2,400 to 7,400 yeah. just by that one move. Because we went to Mountain View. That's when the Silicon Valley was really taking off. All the companies were coming in and stuff like that. And so it wasn't a matter about us not having equity. It wasn't an equity thing. It was, what are you going to do to keep winning souls? Yeah, yeah. See what I mean? And you got to find folk who need to who learn how to pray with you yeah. and hear with you. Yeah. But what you don't need are folk who say, ah, uh, under no circumstances am I, am I going to sign off on that. that. You don't need that. My father had that when he was a pastor in Philadelphia and his church had grown to 300 members, 
and he was driving down the street in Philly, drove by a big um, synagogue that had, had a for sale sign up. And he said, the Lord spoke to him and said, that's your building. Went back, told the trustees, oh, God showed me our new, our new place. And they went and tried to negotiate. And the trustee chairman said, I've been crunching numbers. If we try to take that building, we haven't even paid off the one we're in. And if we try to get that sold and buy this, he said, we don't, the numbers don't add up. In fact, the trustee chairman told him, we would be bankrupt within a year if we go there. He said, Pastor, we can't do it. And my dad said, well, brother, I appreciate you crunching the numbers, but God said it's ours. So I'm not, I'm not asking y'all, can we do it? I'm telling you what God said. And the trustee chairman said, tell you what, I will resign because I never want my name associated with the disaster that's getting ready to happen. He, he meant well. He's a wilderness person. He in heaven now. Just couldn't see the promised land. He's in heaven. He was a good man. But he said, I, I, uh, I'm not going to be associated. So he resigned. He stayed in the church. Resigned. So another person took the chairmanship of the trustees. The rest of them said, hey, pastor, if the Lord said it, we would you. Guess what? He said a year after they moved in there, they'd be bankrupt. A year after that, they had more money than they had when they first started talking. And that church, that's where the church went from 500, 300 to 1,000 members. Where God guides, he provides. You don't, have to, you don't have to figure out what God, if God is in it, it'll happen. Um, one more story like that. My friend Bishop Kenneth Ulmer down in Southern California, pastor's faithful center, well, he just re resigned. He's the bishop overseer, but he's turned it over to a new senior pastor. Uh, but in the days he was leading Faithful Central Bible Church in Englewood, they were meeting in a high school down there in Englewood, and he had about 1,500 members, and he was tired. He had been in there for a while, and he said, Lord, we need a, need a place where we can do full-service ministry. He said, I flew in from out of town, speaking engagement. One of my men picked me up and was going to drive me home from the airport. He said, and for some reason, instead of driving me down Century Boulevard, which is the main drag, if you, if you know LAX area, Century Boulevard's that main drag. And he said, for some reason, this brother starts driving me down Florence Avenue. And he said, I'm like, why are we going down Florence? He's thinking to myself, why are we going down here? Just going straight down Century. It was a God thing. They're driving down Florence. And he looks over and sees property for sale. Bishop says, stop the car. Jumped out, got the information from the sign, called him. My church is in Englewood. We're at the high school. We need to go. Bottom line is, they put in a bid for $5.2 million. This was in 1990, probably 90. Uh, $5.2 million, trying to buy it. The city of Englewood itself outbid them. 
and got the property. But Bishop Armour had already told his church, the Lord said, that's ours. So when he had to go back and say, well, saints, we're going to keep worshiping here for now. I don't know what happened. But Englewood bought the property. He said a few of his members walked up to him afterwards, led by one lady. He said, she shook her finger in my face, said, that makes you a false prophet. Because you said, God said, that was ours. And now we know it wasn't. You're a false prophet. I'm leaving. And we're leaving. Kenny went to one of our, we both had a, a mutual uh, bishop friend who was like a spiritual dad to him and a spiritual uncle to me. He said, I went into Bishop Benjamin Reed's office and fell on his shoulders weeping, saying, Pop, we missed it. I don't know how, but... And Bishop Reed knew how to hear from God. And while Kenny was weeping, Bishop Spitt said, the Lord said, it's yours. Yeah. No, Pop, you understand, we lost it. We, tried, we put in our best bid. And we, and we lost it. We got kicked out of the deal. Bishop Reed said, God said, it's yours. No, you don't understand. We, it's done. They own it. It's, there is, it's not on the market. God said, it's yours. They worshiped for two, two and a half, I think, more years at the high school. Englewood never did anything with the property. Finally, Englewood was doing its audit, the controller and all them, and they decided we got to get this off our books because we need the money. And we got to sell it for whatever we can get. And the building that Kenny couldn't get in 1990 or 91 for 5.2 that he had put the bid in for, he ended up owning for 2.5. God saved them a couple of million dollars by letting Englewood buy it and need, need to sell it for whatever they could get. Where God guides, he provides. So all you got to do is surround yourself with folk who know how to echo what God said. God bless you.